Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. <sighs> Today, it's, it's, it's returns. All kinds of returns have happened in the last week. We just did a podcast last week. As I said last week, we're trying to do more. Cody Hodek is back to help me in the trusty sidekick seat. And Cody, I already feel like we could have done three podcasts in the last seven days about all the things that are transpiring in the National Basketball Association. See, that conversation goes back to when we did the top 75, and you're like, we're going to keep this to a healthy hour and a half. And then two hours and 45 minutes later, we finished. And then you told me before these, you're like, we're going to keep these to a solid 35 to 45 minutes. And then it's like two hours before the podcast. Like, by the way, I added three more things to the outline. So I had... I'm not sure what you're trying to do, but sure, let's record every single day. That's that's the that is the outline. It's just the latest three things. By the time Monday rolls around, everything like do people remember that Kyrie Irving made his return this week? That was that was only a few days ago. Yeah, that's like the second most intriguing return of the last week. Somehow, the the person who can only play a maximum of 22 games because he can only play on the road and has sat out the entire season because of the craziness that we're playing in a pandemic is the second most interesting return from the last week. You know, that actually threw me off. I fired up the uh, the second game after his return, and I was like, oh, I'm going to watch some more Kyrie clips. I'm like, why is Kyrie not playing in this game? Like, oh, yeah. yeah. Home game. It's yeah. a home game. Yeah. He can't play because it's yeah. a pandemic. I, I did the exact same thing. <laughs> I I was like, yes, another Ky- another big three game for the Nets for me to scout. Oh, no, it's in Barclays. There will not be a big three game for me to scout. So, yeah, they can he can only play, I think, like 21 more games max if, uh, if my ability to count to 21 is correct when I looked at the schedule. I think you're right. And in general, that's made watching teams... I mean, no other players are really in the same situation as Kyrie, but it makes watching specific players so difficult because I'll fire up a team and I'm like, I'm going to watch so-and-so tonight. And so-and-so is not playing. Or I'm like, oh, I want to see this combination. It's like, oh, actually, that combination hasn't played in five games. And yeah, it's hard to keep track of all that. So so that is a perfect segue. We didn't plan this. This is just how it happens. That's a perfect segue into what we want to discuss today, which is the healthy team standings. I've talked about these in the past. I've talked about, about them doing historical work. But the idea is you look at teams when their best players are playing. We'll keep it simple today. We'll just look at the top kind of two, three, four guys in a core, depending on who's missed time. And this at least gives us a better picture of how they're playing with all hands on deck. But this season, because of all the injuries, just like last season, because of all the missed time with COVID, you you have to still kind of mentally curve. Like it's it's not actually super accurate for every team because you may play let's let's what are we about 30, 38 to forty games into the season for most teams right now? Is that is that about right off the top of my head? Sounds about right. Yeah, okay. So 
that's about half a season. So if you say like, oh, they've been healthy for some of these teams, 25, 28 games, whatever it is, uh, is that a nice sample? Normally it's starting to get toward being a nice sample, but it doesn't help when one quarter of your games are against teams where they're missing four or five guys from COVID or you caught the Bulls twice in a week and they had eight guys out from COVID or something like that. So, so we'll do our best, but at least looking at how teams have performed when they are quote unquote healthy can give us a barometer to kind of compare like who, who are the contenders, who are the pretenders, who, who needs to worry a lot, what's going on here. That, that's what we're hoping to do with the show today. So going off the numbers that you have here that you're going to be reading, this is just looking at whether or not that team is fully healthy. It's not looking at whether or not their opponent is also fully healthy, right? Yeah, and and the reason, A, it's a lot simpler to do the calculation that way, but B, um, the samples keep getting smaller and smaller the more you add, right? So so we're just going to do usually two-man, three-man groups. Some of these teams have had core four, uh, you know, kind of players healthy, but when you start adding in, like, well, did they play the other team when their starting five was intact? Not a lot of people have had their starting five intact for, you know, more than half their games. So it would just shrink the sample. So that is a caveat as we go through this to keep that in mind. But should we just jump right in and and go through the sort of the standings as teams are when they are healthy? Yes, there's a lot of numbers, and it is time for you to read them. I... I, I, I protest to this idea that this podcast is just me reading numbers off my computer screen <laughs> that 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 is a ridiculous um possibly accurate way to describe it okay so golden state they oh, oh let me say one more thing what i've done for this and what i've done in a lot of my work as i think i've mentioned this to patreon subscribers last year i have taken uh, a team's win percentage and i have also taken their margin of victory adjusted for opponent and I've combined them because win percentage uh, in the long term, I do believe there's evidence that if you cons- consistently outperform your point differential, then it actually makes you more likely to outperform your point differential going forward. And so I've combined those two things to give you the quote unquote pace that a team is on. So starting with Golden State, uh, they are on a 66 win pace if you combine their point differential, adjust for the schedule, and then take into account their actual record in the 30 games that Steph Curry, Draymond Green, and Andrew Wiggins have been out on the court. So I know he's only been back for one game, but going forward for the rest of the season, like if we have like, I don't know, let's say Clay is able to play the majority of the rest of the season, are you going to adjust those top three for the Warriors, or are those going to be the three same Warriors that you look at, or are you going to look at them as like, here's the first half of the season with these three, here's the second half of the season with Clay involved? How are you imagining going forward with this Warriors team? Yeah, I would look at if Clay plays 40-something games the rest of the season, um, you know, we have to play it by ear. Obviously, he's not playing full-time right now. They're going to they're going to ease him back in in terms of minutes, which I think is the right thing to do. So you, you might have to take that into account. But obviously, what I'm interested in when I size teams up like this is when we get to the postseason, what does a team look like? And if Clay Thompson is a core part of that team, I'm interested in how they perform with Clay. Last night, we were recording this on Monday. He came back on Sunday night. League pass broke streams broke it was it was very difficult for some people 
like me to watch that live, even though it was, um, I think, very exciting for everyone else. You were able to watch it without a, without a hiccup, yeah. No, I had, I had no problem going onto NBA TV and watching it. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, it was fantastic. I got to say, the intro, like when they were doing the intros and they left Clay Thompson alone, he was the last person sitting on the bench and they said, that was, that was the moment, that was the moment of the season so far. And, you know, my wife is standing next to me and she's like, he doesn't look very happy right now. And I'm like, I honestly think he's probably just trying not to start bawling right now on national TV. So that was a real, that was just a really cool, powerful moment. Yeah, it was some, probably with him, some, some balance between that or just complete yelling and explosion of, of excitement, which we saw later on the court. Um, it, it was, it was awesome to watch. I think my big quick takeaway is I think the, offense is going to largely be there um, both in terms of the movement remember Clay's a big guy six 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 seven just sort of the way he plays he's never needed uh, a lot of shiftiness he does not like we, we joke that he does not like to dribble a lot he's he's very efficient with moving and catching the ball into his shots and of course the shot and the stroke I don't I don't see anything in the mechanics that would make me think he's still not going to be one of the best shooters in the world. So I think on offense, there's a lot there that I expect to be pretty similar. Um, Defense is where I've always been concerned and I didn't see anything like last night to, uh, you know, change my mind on that really, because it's going to be hard for him, I think, to play the exact same role defensively that he plays. Wiggins plays the role now. You know, Wiggins can take the point of attack. Wiggins is the stopper. I frankly think Wiggins has played that role better than Clay ever has. And then, and then, so what does that mean? Does Clay go off ball? Because I think right now with the way Golden State plays defense, when you are off ball, you need to communicate, be active, and be really, really aware. And Clay's weakness defensively is off ball in terms in terms of just having lapses. So. I don't know, you know, I think I think the especially in the postseason, the offensive juice, as we all expect, is going to solidify them and, and give them um, sort of better championship odds. But I do wonder what that looks like in the long run if he's eating up a lot of minutes defensively, if it changes anything at all, or if um, you know, it, it kind of brings down the ceiling of that incredible defense. And again, this is one of two returns we're gonna talk about today, but it's always <laughs> it's, yeah, one <laughs> One of two returns. Yes. And it's, is... I'm sorry, go no, on. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, it's really tough to think about what, what are the actual takeaways you want to try and get from that first game. Because it's like this balance between, like, let's celebrate the fact this is the first time we're seeing Clay Thompson play a game since the finals. And was that was that 2019? Was that actually 2019? It was 2019. It was, it was tw- yeah. Yeah. That's... It's, it's, it's bizarre. There were, no, there were no health and safety protocols back when he was last playing basketball. It was a long time ago. Wow, that is a completely different world. But even things things seemed like out of the flow. Like the Clay Thompson, I remember he was forcing shots that I wasn't used to. Not on fire, Clay forcing uh, defensively. Just something I've noticed around the league is with so many new players joining, there's a lot of missed rotations, a lot of missed not knowing what the defensive scheme is. Obviously, Clay knows Kerr's system. He probably has been sitting around and studying their defensive system a lot this season, so he has an upper hand from a player that just has like a ten day contract. Um, but given all that, it's tough to watch just this one game and be like, all right, what are they going to be going forward? So I'm going to, I'm going to try not to, 
uh, get too excited or too disappointed about anything. But I do think it was a good sign that at least two of his, I think the two first two field goals he made were two drives. One of them was a nice little floater, and the other one was a he straight up yammed it down there on the yeah. drive. I, I didn't see that coming. That was great. Yeah, no, he looked, I think, just physically in terms of the movement patterns, um, I think what you would expect, you couldn't you couldn't have any higher expectations. Well, I guess you could have higher expectations, but I think you couldn't have better results relative to, I think, reasonable expectations. Uh, and yeah, just a lot of bounce in his step. So I, I think offensively, just from the one game, mixing that in with the clips we've seen of him warming up, practicing, um, you know, Santa Cruz stuff, whatever it is, I, I think he he looks fantastic and uh, yeah, another another weapon for the Warriors who, once again, when we look at the healthy cores in the league, they've played 30 games together. Their 66 win pace is the best in basketball. Um, the, the fact that they're atop the standings seems to be no fluke at this point. They they are number one in in what we are walking through today. So I'm looking at the, the numbers you have there. Their offense is... Uh, just a shade over two. The relative offense is about two points better than the league average. The relative defense yep. is just about eight points better than the league average, which historically is you know one of the best defenses. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I can't think of it off the top of my head, but even from like 1990, that's probably like top six, top five. Because there's only a couple. So I think I mentioned it in the Warriors defense video. There's only like 15 tops that have been past um, seven points better than the league. And then there's only a couple at eight. And the Spurs, 04, maybe? I can't remember off the top of my head. One of those Spurs teams was minus 8.8. The Warriors are minus 7.9. When healthy, and I think the best health... Like, the Pistons, to me, the 04 Pistons, once they got Rasheed Wallace, they they went to another planet. They were, like, in the 10s or 11s when they played, if you include their playoff stretch. It's, like, 40 games or something. But, yeah, this is this is just a phenomenal defense, and... That's why that's why my thoughts went to um, where where they would be defensively if it takes anything away because I do feel like the defense that they're playing uh, the intensity the physicality the communication um, I compared them in the preseason to the 08 Lakers because I thought they would overachieve do very well be near the top of the standings and then Clay would give them this boost he's he's actually back about a month before I thought. We would see him when when I was um, projecting that out. But I say that to say, I I think I got the 2008 team wrong, Cody. I think the 2008 team that they're kind of more modeling in a way is the Celtics. Because I think that defense is just the thing that is going to ride them through the tough opponents and the tough rounds. Because it's consistent. It strangles teams. It gives them an advantage that just frankly other teams in the league don't really have. I mean, who's the who's the second best defense right now? The Cavs. So yeah, the top five defenses right now are the Warriors. Second are actually the Phoenix Suns, which are only about 0. 0.7 uh, points per one hundred uh, below them. Then the Cavaliers, Clippers in the fourth spot, and then the Mavericks. Mavericks yeah. have yeah, the best sneak- defense. Yeah, we'll we'll talk. We'll 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 see where these teams kind of line up when they're all healthy. Um, so. Phoenix is interesting because Phoenix, I think, is in that, as we talked about last week, is in that inner circle championship kind of contender place. So the fact that they have a great defense is also something that's sort of an arrow in their quiver, I think, when they play top teams. But at least from scouting it on film for me, 
the Warriors have a better ability to kind of neutralize um, some of the top teams relative to Phoenix and their matchup. Although Phoenix is Phoenix is fantastic. They're very good. So I say all that to say that the defensive personnel, the attitude, the intensity, it reminds me a little bit more of the 08 Celtics, whereas the 08 Lakers were an offensive juggernaut and you had a fire and ice kind of matchup in the finals that year, which was really fun. And, and, and the defense won out, I guess the ice won out. That's a, that's a really deep joke yeah. for about X's and O's basketball. Um, Tom Thibodeau was sort of the <laughs> popularizer of ice coverage. Anyway, I'll stop. I'll see myself out. I got, I got a question for you about the Warriors here. So with their relative offense and relative defense where they are right now, um, it's not like Clay's coming in replacing someone else. Like the Warriors are keeping their core roster and Clay is beating added into that. So I don't I don't know how good Clay's gonna be. Let's just for the sake of argument say like at least eighty percent of Clay Thompson that we know. How do you think that affects the team? Do you think the the defense would stay about the same? Do you think the offensive number might go up what, a point? A point and a half? What do you think? I don't know. I mean, I tend to expect the offense to go up, but I think it's something that pays more dividends in the pay- in the playoffs. Like in, in the regular season, they can obviously play at a 60-win pace with the team they have, with the rotation they have, with the bench they have, uh, as long as they're relatively, excuse me, relatively healthy. But when you get to the postseason, and I think things become a little bit more extreme, you know, somebody takes away your fastball, do you have a changeup, do you have a curveball? those kind of counters that I've talked about so much in the past. I I think having Clay out there alongside Steph Curry, it's not necessarily a linear combination. There's some exponential greater than the sum of their parts by having two of these guys run around. And yeah, Jordan Poole's nice in that role, but there's two things. One, Jordan Poole's not Clay Thompson um, on many levels. And, And two... One of those levels is that Jordan Poole hasn't done it in the playoffs, and he's very young. And Clay Thompson, um, he's had plenty of struggles in the playoffs. That's a whole separate podcast. We could actually, you know, do another time. But he has also risen to huge moments. And Game Six, Clay obviously being the sort of most famous standard bearer of that. So that's where I think it helps him. I don't know how much it's going to alter the course of their regular season numbers if we were to take first half of the season you know without clay and second second half of the season with clay i feel like of the indelible clay thompson moments in that game six games the like off kilter foot placement pull up 36 foot shot oh my god i think that's that's the shot when i think of clay thompson that's the shot that goes in but if my memory serves before he went out with his injury in 2019 he was he was on fire that game, game. six yep Game yeah. six. Yeah, he had a huge game. Um, and, and you know, that's that's also a fun one. Like, what would have happened? I think if he didn't get injured, they probably lose game seven. I, I think if he plays that fourth quarter, I think they – I still to this day think they pull out that game. Anyway, we, we've, we've gone in the weeds. What's new? Um, the, second, the second best healthy team also together for 30 games. And by the way, if we mention anyone – if we don't mention anyone – and they're like part of the starting unit of one of these teams, uh, and you're wondering, yeah, he's included, right? Because he just has, if he hasn't missed any games, he's included. So, in the case of Utah, um, Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gay, Rudy Gobert, 
what this is the when you type Rudy, this is what you do to yourself. This is incredible. When I read that, I also thought Rudy gay, and I'm like, yeah, yeah Rudy why gay, is, that makes sense. Absolutely why is not. Rudy gay part of the core lineup? I don't know. Um, Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert, Mike Connolly, they're big three. When they are together, they are playing at a 65 win pace through 30 games, and the complete opposite of the Golden State Warriors. Their offense is plus 10, and their defense is just a little bit better than league average, about a point better than league average. What's interesting to me about that defense is, uh, we talked about this back when I was on Sense and Scalability, the podcast, but we talked about Gobert's like the reverse James Harden as like this heliocentric defensive force where it's like, we're going to put all of our chips in the offensive basket and Gobert's going to kind of be the glue that holds everything together here. And the on-off numbers definitely prove that to be true right now because if you look at Donovan Mitchell, Bojan Bogdanovich, Royce O'Neal, the Jazz are all like four points worse, five points worse, six and a half points worse on defense when they're on. But when Gobert's on, they're seven and a half points better. So it, the defensive number, when you just look at that point, uh, negative point eight relative defensive rating, you're like, what's going on? Is Gobert having an off year? No, I just feel like they have even more of their chips. They're like, okay, this didn't work out the last couple of years in the playoffs. Let's go even more offensively focused here. Um and like we, we talked a little bit about this with the Rudy Gay signing uh, last yep. podcast, but I think that's also aiming them in that direction going forward. Yeah, and the only thing I'll say there on Gobert is that the you look at that and you might think, oh, they they have a slightly above average defense. That's not very impressive. But I think it's in Golden State. Golden State can play more defensive personnel because of someone like Steph Curry, because of his effect on the offense, creating easier shots. You don't need to be hyper-talented to cut to the basket and make a layup. In, in Utah, you get the kind of reverse thing. You get this defensive version of this where Utah plays all these offensive guys that can't guard the ball. But at least in the regular season, just by virtue of having Rudy in the paint, he keeps them afloat uh, on defense and allows... The, all that offensive firepower to exist and create this absurd offense that I have to, uh, I have to, I have to get to on video at some point very soon. It's coming. I've been watching them more lately. They just, whew, we talked about them last week. So let's let's continue. Um, the third best. I think this is going to throw some people off. This is going to catch people off guard. The third best team as of last night. They would go down just a little bit after the game last night because they lost. But the third best team, 24 games with the core together, Evan Mobley, Jared Allen, Darius Garland, the Cleveland Cavaliers playing at a 62-win pace in those 24 games. They are plus two on offense, and I asked earlier about this, the third best defense there, about minus six, six points better than the league on defense, that third-ranked defense, uh, as we said, in the league. One caveat there, of course, is that they – don't have Ricky Rubio anymore to kind of help steady the bench. You know, we look one of the, so let me just say one thing. One of the reasons you look at the core three or core four players is statistically, once you start controlling 95, 98% of the time, like on most teams, once you start getting to like the fifth player, the sixth player, the seventh player, they move the needle very, very little. It's very rare for a team to need kind of the chemistry of five players or six players, usually once you get to your core, and some teams it's just like two or three guys and the other parts can go in and out of the lineup. I think to some degree, um, the old Heatles team 
probably had lineups like that once they once they got their role players set. So it's not to say that Cle- you can you can take this to the bank with Cleveland um, because I do think someone like Ricky Rubio leaving the lineup and then bringing in Rondo does impact where they're going. But at least after 24 games, Cody, they've been spectacular when those three young guys they have have been all on the court. So this is one of those when we're in the uh, Thinking Basketball group chat. This is probably like team number one that people are excited about. Like everyone's always sharing clips of them raving about their favorite players and whatnot. And, you know, stylistically, I agree. I think it's really fun to see Evan Mobley come into the uh, come into the NBA as developed as he is right now. Like it's kind of mind-blowing. I think I, th- I was starting to come up with my all-star teams way too early, like a month ago. And my first thought was Jared Allen was one of my locks. And then it's it's really hard for me to separate now. I'm like looking at it closer and I'm like, can I really say that? Like, how do I separate the Jarrett Allen, the Evan Mobley, the Darius Garland? Obviously, all three of them bring something very different, but the all-star roster doesn't care. And I know this is a conversation we'll get to at some point, but uh, I think that's just a, it's a really fun combo. And I don't know how deep you want to dive into this because there's a, um, I think this is going to be an upcoming topic, which is Darius Garland at some point, but. Yeah, I, I love this Cavs team. Yeah, we just had the Garland video on the Thinking Basketball YouTube channel this week, and I think it's a it's maybe a bigger conversation because when we've talked about it before, um, it's expanded a lot. So I think we'll table the Garland thing for next week. But yeah, the Cavs are very young. They're very exciting. And when I think... Let, let's just say this because people are talking about All-Star a lot. When I think of All-Star... I do think this kind of stuff matters. Like the actual quality of your team when they're healthy matters. When you're on the court, what's going on? So everyone says, shouldn't we reward team quality? You know, shouldn't shouldn't we give three or four all-star spots to the teams at the top and no all-star spots to the teams in 12th? Um, A, I don't love that just because of the sort of... Um, the idea that you're conflating team with individual and it feels like all-stars should be, should be an individual accolade, an individual acknowledgement. But secondly, if the whole purpose of what we're saying is I care about players influencing teams in a positive way versus just flash, aesthetic, statistics, empty, quote-unquote empty statistics, whatever it is, if we actually care that someone is playing a winning kind of basketball, then... You need that. You want the context to tell you that their team is playing really, really well when everyone's healthy. Or, as we'll get to later, relative to other teams when they're healthy, your team's actually not playing that well. And you know, sneaking off a couple like some team that is in first or second in their conference around this halfway point of the season because they've won nine of their ten close games but their point differential and everything else is a problem and they've been healthy and everything else is a problem and they're shooting. I'm really foreshadowing now to one of the teams we're going to talk about in a minute, but like that to me seems to be missing the whole purpose of actually acknowledging someone for having their play impact winning for the team, if that makes sense. I think that makes a lot of sense. It's something that I've been thinking about in terms of picking all-star teams that are maybe not, uh, from teams that are not doing that well, maybe less than a 500 record, if you have like, I don't know, a negative net rating or around a zero net rating or something like that, and you have two or three players that people often talk talk about in terms of, oh, this person's probably an all-star, this person's probably about an all-star, 
I start getting a little skeptical because I'm like, if you have like three of these players on your team that your fans think could be an all-star and you're still not that good, that's an enormous red flag for me. And, you know, again, we have thousands of topics on this sheet and I'm always afraid to, to I'm just going <laughs> to dip my toes into each one and see like, which see, let's see which one Ben's going to bite on and then we'll go that direction. But uh, I, I know for a fact that there's one team that uh, you and I are interested in talking about that uh, someone we know got shredded talking about on Twitter once upon a time. So and, uh, I don't even know. That was too much of a secret of illusion, even for me. Maybe who, that's who, good. Maybe we'll leave, okay. it. we'll leave it at that and talk about it when the time is right. Okay, okay. So I want to get to that team I just alluded to. So let me plow through some of these. Uh, the, the team with the fourth best healthy pace right now is the Bucks. They've only played 19 games with their big three. None of those include Brooke Lopez. Cody is flashing everyone. Um, if if this is, is on YouTube or you're watching it, he will have his uh, Bucks propaganda T-shirt going there. Giannis, Holiday, Chris Middleton, uh, sixty win pace when those guys are together in nineteen games. The Suns right behind them. They've played twenty games with Chris Paul, Devin Booker. DeAndre Ayton, and again, that might be a case I can't think of off the top of my head. Mikel Bridges, if he hasn't missed any time, um, he would also be included in that. I just don't need to control for it when I when I run the numbers. So the Bucks are at a fifty. Uh, the Bucks are at a sixty win pace. The Suns at a fifty seven win pace. We talked about them briefly last week as a sleeper team. The Miami Heat, they've only had their quote unquote big three: uh, Bam Adebayo, Jimmy Butler, Kyle Lowry together for fourteen games. And they are also playing at a 57 win pace. So something to keep an eye on in the back of your head where um, Miami does have really nice indicators when they're all out. Super, super small sample. But I, I think, um, as we mentioned last week, a nice positive indicator for them as a sleeper team. The seventh best team, based on this win pace estimation or calculation when these guys are quote unquote healthy, is the Philadelphia 76ers. And for them, it's just two players. It's when Joel Embiid is in the lineup and when Seth Curry is in the lineup. They've played 27 games together, and they have a plus three offense and a minus one and a half defense. Both of those would kind of be top 10-ish for a full season. And again, remember, everyone everyone is healthy in these comparisons, but their opponents aren't necessarily healthy. So an average team wouldn't be 41 wins. An average team would be like 44 or 45 wins because everyone's getting the best slice of their schedule. And maybe a 50-win team, if we played it out against a healthy league for the full season, might win 46 or 47 games. So this doesn't necessarily mean we can expect Philadelphia to play at a 55-win pace against a healthy league the rest of the way. But this is a nice number, Cody, I think, for looking at where the Sixers are because of how, how much they've struggled without Embiid. And then a reminder that this is multiple years now where whenever Embiid's on the court, they're like a 50-plus win team pretty consistently. Can I actually talk about Curry as the second guy here first? Um, Please. Because I'm, I'm imagining a Sixers fan right now listening and being like, why is Tyrese Maxey not listed as the second person? So I guess on a more meta level, how is it that you determined the quote-unquote best players or the main core for each of these teams? It, it's it's a really simple idea. You're just looking for big samples with the core players in who are up there in leading minutes. That's that's pretty much it. So if you're a starter, if you're 30, 35 minutes per game, um, then you just want to see, does controlling for this player make a difference and can we get a decent sample? So 
you can control for the player and it might make a difference, but if it's a five-game sample, it doesn't really do us much good right now. It might do us good if we come back in April and try to assess the team. But in the case of Philadelphia, you're just, what guys make a difference? Embiid and Curry is a pairing that at least has played 27 games together, and it's a big difference. When they're out there, the 76ers are good. When they're not out there, especially Embiid, the 76ers are not that good. <laughs> No, and I find that really interesting because I, I don't know how much discourse I hear about Embiid this year. And every time I watch the Sixers, I'm like, this guy is, this guy continually puts it all together. I feel like his jumper is looking even a little bit like, how do I want to say it? Like lighter? Like it kind of, yeah, it tickles soft. the twine nicer? Yeah, it's soft. It yeah, hits the rim. Yeah. It dances around. It falls in. I feel like he's he's maybe quicker on his feet. His spin moves seem even more graceful. Like when I see him with his size, he like in the same possession will just rock someone down into the paint and then do this pirouette of a spin that honestly I'm watching and I, I can't not think about Olajuwon when I see things like that. But honestly, it's, I, I, I'm going to say it. I'm going to make that direct comparison right now. But Embiid's been in incredible to watch this season and I feel like there is at least earlier on in the season people were maybe a little bit down on his play and uh, maybe maybe defensively I don't know if the motor is quite there but I also feel like that's always a conversation about Embiid I don't know if the motor is always there in the regular season for Embiid and that's why he's never an honest defensive player of the year candidate even though when he turns it on he is one of the best defensive players so yeah that's a that's a sneaky scary team right now yeah and and if his passing kind of continues to expand. He, he made a pass the other day that did the rounds on Twitter that kind of made my jaw drop where I was like, oh man, don't, don't tease me because I, I still feel like he has a long way to go as a passer and it's just unrealistic for him to get into that like great passing bigs conversation. But the, the scoring is just so good. And like you said, when he's, when he's on or when he's able to exert himself um, and he's healthy, the defense is there. Yeah, he's he's kind of flown under the radar. I think that's a great call on your part. Um, the next team is Chicago. This is the eighth best healthy win team, health healthy team based on their pace, based on their wins pace when their core is together. And this is one of those teams that has guys that go all the way out to Alex Caruso. The samples get small and they stop making much of a difference. But if you look at Zach Levine, Lonzo Ball, and DeMar DeRozan, They've played 26 games together at a 52-win pace. And if you add uh, Nikola Vucevic at center, they've played 19 games together at a 57-win pace. Kind of that similar, like, are they top 10-ish on both sides of the ball? Plus two on offense, minus one on defense. Um, That's without Vuce. With Vuce, they're a little better in both areas. So Bulls continue to play well. Here's the team I was alluding to earlier. And it might surprise people to see them all the way down at ninth. They they have played 29 games in Brooklyn with Kevin Durant and James Harden. And the Nets are playing at a 48-win pace. And as I said, this is when everyone's healthy. So when you look at healthy teams, when you look at healthy offenses, healthy defenses, you have to, you have to curve it a little bit in your head relative to league average. Because 48 wins at a healthy pace... We do not expect a 48 win win total at the end of a season. You'd play the entire league, you might be 45 or 44 or something like that, assuming you were healthy and everyone else was healthy. So to me, this is a concerning number for the Nets because their offense is about, uh, excuse me, their defense is about league average in these 29 games, and their offense is two points ahead of league average. Um, 
there's a lot we can get to, including Kyrie Irving's return and what happened in that game. But Cody, when you saw that, did that number surprise you at all? Were you expecting it to be higher? Or does that feel about right? The ninth, you know, like when you look at power rankings, are you expecting to see the ninth, the Nets in ninth? So I'm going to have you buckle up for a second because I'm going to take you on my Brooklyn Nets journey for the season. Okay. All right. All hands inside the ride. We're going to go on this. Okay. Going back to that all-star team that I made when I was putting them all together, I must have been a month, month and a half ago. Who knows at this point? But when I made it, uh, James Harden was a lock, like a, a dead set lock in my mind. I'm like, why wouldn't he be a lock? Kevin Durant, James Harden, they're the best team in the East at the time. They had the best record in the East. And I'm like, of course, it, it makes sense. Like James Harden, even though his numbers are down, uh, it's still a very, very good team that he's on. And then I started looking at the numbers. And I'm like, wait a second. The relative defense at the time is actually better than the relative offense. So if you're looking at it that way, like James Harden isn't contributing that much to their defense to make them the better team. Because if they're winning more based on their defense than their offense, that can't be James Harden's doing doing that. So then they started getting nervous. And then I think at the time, their relative offense was something like a plus 1.3. And I'm like, how is a team with Kevin Durant and James Harden have a relative offense of only plus 1.3 at this time? And then I, I started just rethinking everything and hold, you know existential crisis about my all-star team i packed it away i'm like i'm not looking at this until late january again when things start working themselves out that's my long-winded way of saying that when i first discovered that when you look under the hood of the nets and don't just look at the wins when i did at the time um i was very shocked the first time i did it but when you put it up here i'm like yep that's kind of the direction i was seeing this going when i was uh looking at it so the the lineup constructions that they've had with durant and with harden they have often surrounded those guys with defensive players. We alluded to this earlier when we were talking about the Warriors and the Curry construction. But the thing is, so you say, okay, so maybe we don't have to be that critical of a plus-two offense with these two great offensive players. Um, Harden, for my money, not quite where he was at his peak. Durant still playing extremely well, obviously, on the offensive side. And don't you expect them to have a better offense? Well... Here's the thing. Their defense actually isn't that good in my eyes. And I think it's a lot of smoke and mirrors that's propping the Nets up right now. And I have noticed it more and more and more as I watch them, specifically their pick and roll defense. And we'll get to the Indiana and Kyrie game in a second, because that was the game that was just horrifying. Um, but when when I, I said this with John Morant last week, I feel like when you watch a team... And it's hard to pinpoint the differences and what's going on. Like you watch the Nets, and to me, they have these defensive breakdowns. They struggle handling pick and roll. And then you look at the numbers, and you're like, wait, well, wait a second. They have like the same – their numbers aren't that different than the Timberwolves. But then I watch the Timberwolves, and the Timberwolves are doing a lot of really successful things on defense. And they have these lineups that are working, and they have defensive stoppers. And they don't have these, these terrible breakdowns. They might have patterns, especially in transition – that are weak points, but they just look like two different entities. A, it's possible that what the Nets are doing works, but B, in my experience, usually there's something else going on. And so I took a look at the shooting luck, Cody, everyone's favorite, you know, America's favorite game show, um, regression to the mean. The, the Nets have had some crazy shooting luck on the defensive side. Well, it's not as crazy as what we talked about with Memphis, but it's been strong. It's been strong enough to completely shift how I think we would be talking about and thinking about this team and this defense if they even just had average shooting luck. So 
when you look at wide open threes, the league typically on wide open threes, according to the way Second Spectrum and NBA.com categorize them, shoots 37.7% on wide open threes. Against the Nets, they've shot 35.6%. That's on the entire season. Um, Open threes, the league shoots at 33.7%. Against the Nets, they've shot 30%. They're shooting 30% on open threes against the Nets. And what's more concerning to me is that the Nets actually give up way more open threes than the average team. They give up 18, over 18 wide open threes a game. The league average is 16-7, and they give up uh, 15.5 compared to 14.5 on open threes. And if you if you swap those numbers around and you just give them average shooting on open and wide open threes, the Nets would lose about three points off of their defense, and they would be the 22nd ranked defense in the NBA. And that, to me, is the bigger concern because I think they're having breakdowns on the back line. They're struggling to control pick and roll. They're giving up a lot of open shots, and they're just kind of living by the three, dying by the three. But we know that's not sustainable. So we're in uh, fiery territory right now because I feel like when you talk about shooting luck and wide open threes, everyone just loses their collective minds on this. Uh, <laughs> and so let me let me ask you the question that someone might be thinking: uh, Do you does this control for these specific players that are taking these wide open threes? Because some people might be like, because uh, I think that this was the discourse around the Bucks and the amount of threes they were giving up back in like 2019. And it was like, well, actually, the Bucks are forcing worse three-point shooters to take wide open threes. Do you think there's any evidence of the Nets doing this? Or are they just giving up wide open threes and open threes? No, I, I from watching, this is what I'm saying. When you watch them on film, they look like a really porous defensive team. And it's one of those situations that's jarring to watch them regularly and then see them in like the top 10 in defense. Um, And the samples are still small enough that this matters, number one. Number two, we have a huge history. Seth Part now, I feel like, has probably categorized this. Like He probably has an entire wall um, in his house of the last five years of all the teams that have regressed. Every year he has a team, and last year it was the Knicks, and then the fans get very mad at him and they say the exact same thing. They, it's, It's kind of magical thinking, right? Because it's not that there aren't teams that make open threes harder. I said this last week. You can make open threes harder in two ways. You can force them in different situations. Um, at the end of the shot clock is the greatest example because you have time pressure and you might be tired. Like it, it, We shouldn't assume that every defense should be expected to give up open threes at the exact same rate. But the variability in open threes should not be extreme because they're open threes by definition. And the other thing is, well, my defense is giving them up to the right players. The A, that's very hard to do unless you're a really good defense. And B, we've seen time and time again that teams regress to the mean because that's not the case. So it's possible that it's the case for your team. If you're ever looking at this and you notice this happening um, for, for the team you're rooting for, the team has a good defense and you're like, well, is it luck? It's possible it's luck. But without any further evidence for that, the assumption that they're giving up threes to the open players is is a magical assumption. If you don't have any evidence for it, it's unlikely that it's happening because most of the time these teams regress back to the norm. And in the case of the Nets, it's not just open threes. I think their bigger problem is um, communications and rotations on the back line. We, we all watched that Kyrie game against the Pacers and the Pacers in the first half man had like a 135 offensive rating or something and they were throwing out 
I mean, they had O'Shea Brissett, Justin Holiday, Kiefer Sykes. I have to read this because I can't even remember the, this unbelievable collection of, um, you know, basically like replacement kind of parts, not good offensive talent uh, for, for the NBA level. Dwayne Washington, um, Lance, Lance Stevenson in his first game back. Now he hit a handful of crazy jumpers. So he hits five or something and you'd expect him to make one, but that, that wasn't it. You could take those off the board. And to me, it was breakdown after breakdown after breakdown on the back line. The Nets like to switch everything and the switching causes problems. They don't always have a guy ready to help their players. Sometimes are glued to the shooters in the corner and not paying attention to the ball. And they just really struggle with pick and roll actions or like cuts through the middle. It, it yeah, it, that Pacers game was a disaster. And I, I don't know how to feel about their switch heavy defense. Cause I know, especially last year, um, there's a lot of numbers floating around. People were really excited about Nick Claxton being one of the best perimeter defending bigs. And of course, if you're a strong perimeter defending big, like Bam at a bio too, you, you, you don't mind having your big switch out there, but he's also their best rim protector by a country mile. Like, when you dive into the number, like the the percentage of, what is it? Players shoot significantly worse. I don't remember what it is, but they shoot something like 16 percentage points worse at the rim when Nick Claxton is defending them there. And no one else on that Nets team is anywhere near that. And Claxton isn't able to use that ability of his if he's anywhere, if he's nowhere near the rim. And if he's not doing that, the usual teammate that's back there that's covering up a lot of that is Kevin Durant. And I feel like Kevin Durant, just by nature of his length, can be a solid shot blocker. I feel like a couple of years ago when he was with the Warriors was probably uh, the best his defense looked. And, you know, he was never a strong two-footed jumper. And I feel like that's even, to me, that's been showing up with him as a backline defender now is when he's contesting some of those shots off two feet. He's not getting the the vertical contesting. He's not able to use his, his strength as you know his body his strength as much and you know I don't know I just, I just don't know how I feel about them having their best rim protector not being near the rim in most of these defensive schemes what do you think about that well I think let's go back to what I said about the lineup constructions they've got guys like Bembry Claxton Bruce Brown even James Johnson getting minutes these are defensive kind of guys that you're able to put out there to to basically stay afloat on offense because you have Harden and Durant. Bringing Kyrie Irving back, I mean, you already saw it. It's it's consistent with his behavior in the past on defense. Like, there were miscommunications, breakdowns at the rim. Kyrie becomes the low man. He's supposed to come over and help. He's late or he doesn't. Um, you mentioned Durant. Durant has length. And I talked about this in his Greatest Peaks profile. That length he can use pretty well on the ball which makes him a kind of switchable defender, if you will, which is nice in this NBA. And you think, well, his length makes him a rim protector. But rim protection is about placement. It's about rotations. It's about awareness. The backline defender is about communicating. And Durant is often asleep in that spot. And I actually think that's he, he, he's been a big contributor. I think this has been James Harden's worst defensive season in years. Um, all, all the switching is to support James Harden staying close to the hoop and in his shell so you don't have to move. So sometimes they're switching so much it looks like they're in a zone. They're not in a zone at all, but they're just like anyone that goes by, I'm just going to stay where I am and we're going to switch. And I think specifically for pick and roll, they have trouble with... I have two guys up on the ball. 
one of them is on the ball, one of them's on the roller. We're just going to switch. So we're going to stay kind of where we are. And I need someone on the backside to help, which is very common. But on the backside, if there's motion or dummy action or movement or a cut, and you're worried about switching, you're paying attention to that and the switch instead of the roller coming at you, instead of the pick and roll action. And so I think they really struggle with like empty side pick and rolls. This is all the Pacers did to them a bunch. It was just like some cuts and pick and rolls constantly. And it was a layup line. And so my concern with them is you actually have a not very good defense right now. And you have an offense that isn't been very good. And you're going to add Kyrie and Joe Harris as well. And your hope is that by adding Kyrie and Joe Harris, theoretically, you play all these guys at the same time with one more. I don't know if it's Claxton, a traditional big, or if it's Bruce Brown or whatever. But your hope is, well, that gets us that supercharged offense we've always wanted. But I feel like each one of those pieces that goes in replaces one of the defensive pieces remotely propping them up. And what does the defense look like? And even if you say, well, it's regular season nets, they'll they'll ramp up the focus. Um how realistic is that? How how sustainable is that for multiple high-level series in the playoffs? That's that's where my mind goes, and that's why I think makes this this an interesting conversation, given the fact that they're at the top of the league. And I'm thinking about the empty-sided pick-and-rolls that you were talking about, because one of the adjust- adjustments was you know, talking about bodies just being a way to stop players from getting to the rim. One of the adjustments is basically just like James Harden, stand here when there's a pick and roll. Like stand five feet in front of the basket and that is it. That is your defensive positioning. And it's amazing in like the, what that does. If your body is there, another body can't just fly through it. Right, in the Pacers game, you mean? Yeah, in the Pacers yeah, game. Yeah, in the fourth quarter, they made a couple adjustments it looked like where it was just so bad. They're like, whenever you're on the weak side, just like go stand in the paint. Just do what the warrior, just like someone go overload near the ball because we can't constantly have our guys. Um, Like I said, it's awareness, but there are also sets with the Nets, especially in that Pacers game. And I think they defend like this in general, where if one of their guys goes to the corner, so they're guarding a man in the corner, that defender almost checks out. Like he's out in the, he's like eight feet out of the paint looking at his man, but there's a layup happening and most other teams rotate a guy on the block. Uh, so this is my concern is that the, the, the team there, the shooting luck has propped up the defense. They're still at the top of the league and wins because frankly, they probably do have an ability to win close games that other teams don't have. But I don't think that ability to win close games is going to do much good when you're playing way better teams that pound you. Uh, and the Nets record off the top of my head, Cody, is like two and seven against the top eight teams, I think. Those teams we just mentioned to get here, the Nets have been smoked by all of them. They can beat the Cavs, though. They have pl- they have two wins against the Cavs. And, and something about the, the defensive positioning talking here, there were a couple plays. Um, Kyrie's comes to mind here where somebody's cut into the rim on a pick and roll, um, and Kyrie's just flying from the weak side, like flying in and jumping up and trying to contest it. You might be watching that and being like, oh, look at him. He's giving a lot of effort. And I do have to say, I thought Kyrie had some really solid defensive effort. He he had a, quite a few mental lapses on defense. I think he tried to save a couple balls, like things where I was generally like, he's out there and he's hustling. That's pretty solid for a first game back. But when you see a player flying in for a help side uh, block like that, that just means someone's out of position. So always rewind that and be like, who should be standing there? Kind of like the the James Harden positioning we were talking. Yeah, about. yeah. So maybe we'll leave it there. Um, the the only t- the tenth team behind them also with a forty eight win pace with, through fifteen healthy games is the Mavericks. They've had Luca, Kristaps Porzingis, 
and Tim Hardaway Jr. But after that, we get to teams like the Raptors, the Nuggets. Um, we talked about Memphis last week, who's probably going to skyrocket up these standings uh, if we were to come back to them in a month or two. So maybe that's probably a good place to stop, especially if holding me to my 35 to 45 minute, minute projections for podcast episodes. But yeah, I mean, are, are you with me on the net situation? I mean, we talk about this throughout the week as these as these games are going on. But I, I do think it's very much like clay where, well, it's slightly different because the Warriors shell is so solid. But with with Brooklyn, you're hoping for a huge offensive boost. You're hoping for kind of an explosion, I would imagine, on offense. And then can you avoid bleeding too much value on the defensive side if you've got three of these guys out there at the same time? Or, you know, Joe Harris, another dimension to their offense. But Joe Harris, of course, has struggled mightily uh, against some of the better teams in the league in the playoffs in the last couple seasons. So we'll see. Yeah, and looking at their offense, last year they were a plus six on offense. Right now they're a plus, you know, 1.1 throughout the season. And the Nets had a lot of people missing lineups. It's not like they were full strength for that entire season. But even then, I feel like during the playoffs, and, you know, a lot of things I say are filtered through Bucks fandom, but they look <laughs> they look like a legit defensive team in that Bucks series last year. And but, but I feel like all of the teams that cheated everything last season with the way the game is officiated, with fans being back in the arena, so it changes the sight lines and you don't have this goofy made up shooting like like we we know officials changed and we know we seem to think shooting changed when there's no fans and you have different sight lines um everything seems a little more stable on that end where i like the nets they've rarely even tried they did it they did it a little in the pacers game with Kyrie back and they've done it here and there but they have not gone to a micro ball lineup this season with kevin durant as the five and four wings around him. And I, it would be interesting to see when the playoffs come around if they try that Bruce Brown center lineup more and how that works. But I feel like a lot of the teams that have tried to play really small and cheat in the last two seasons since the lockdown, since there were no fans, this year I don't know if those rules quite apply. And the way the game is officiated, the big men around the basket seem to have a little bit more value back and you're giving up that value when you're just like, oh, we're not we're not we're not going to play anyone that can that can guard in the paint at all. And we're going to try to beat you on the other end. I, I, I don't know. It's the, the jury's still out. But um, the, the early returns to me are not as promising as I think you would have hoped. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. Yeah. Uh, let's leave it there. Um, to support this show or all things Thinking Basketball, check out Thinking Basketball. No, that's not the that's not the address at all. It's patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Can't even can't even get my own plugs correct, Cody. Um, what do we have over there? We've got we've got a live Q&A coming up at the end of the month. Those are always fun. Yeah. If you like the Garland video, there's like a much longer director's cut over there, too. That's right. Yeah. Sometimes there's all kinds of extra content and the Garland video um, does have a director's cut. Sometimes I get crazy and have longer versions and then need to trim them down. There's old articles, uh, a proprietary in-season stats leaderboard that updates daily. Patreon.com slash thinking basketball. It's the best way to support everything we do. Otherwise, um, man, we went over our we went over our time limit. I will hold myself more accountable <laughs> in the next episode but thanks for listening all the way to the end and of course wherever you are hope you're having a great day